So having commissioned the children and youth and Sunday school teachers, uh, I'm going to commission all of you now to leave this room and go to the gym, but don't do it immediately. Next Sunday, we won't be in here. We will be in our church gymnasium. Some of you have been there and you know where that is. Some of you may not, but on Tuesday of this week, our renovation starts and it is exciting to hear about. Some of you know more than others, but we are transforming this space. I think I'm at the end of the service. I'm going to tear up a piece of this atrocity. Uh, there is carpet here that I've been tripping over and in my private moments spitting at. Not literally, you understand. That would be unhygienic. Uh, We are replacing the carpet. We are getting new chairs. We are doing a bunch of HVAC stuff. We are expanding the capacity of this room by 45% because we are growing as a church. And we are really excited that God has led us to take this journey, this adventure, which is a risk. I've been reading in my own personal devotions uh, through Nehemiah and Sometimes there's a lot of reasons to not start a rebuilding project. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem, but God leads us into things that are risky ventures, and we are excited to see what he's going to do. So starting next Sunday, we will be worshiping in the gym, and that's going to continue until at least December the 8th. So you're going to get used to the gym, and it'll be disruptive, but we will be patient with each other. We see what it's all for. Uh, we can fit about 240 people in the gym, but it will be tight. There's less room. There's room in here up front. There's room at the back. There's less of that in the gym. And so we'll be offering some overflow seating in the community room where we have coffee after service with a video link set up. Uh, if you are put off by the coziness of the gym, that will be available. And we ask you in a spirit of welcoming and hospitality to please help other people as they find their way through this, especially those who are new. Um, I had the experience this morning in the equip class at 9 a.m. before the service of, of Judith had left. She was sitting there, and I, I said to someone oh, who wanted to sit there, oh, Judith's sitting there, my wife is sitting there. And I realized that I did it with a smile, and I hope there was an understanding there, but I realized we can do that sort of naturally, and we don't realize in a way that we're closing the door to someone. So um, as we grow as a congregation, let's make room for each other. Let's flash that warm smile. Let's invite people and let's make space. Let's open up what we may have saved for others to the person who is a stranger to us. So during the construction phase of this renovation project, the sanctuary is going to be totally off limits, so please don't come in here. I've been asked to emphasize that by the maintenance committee. Last week, Andrew Isaac mentioned that in uh, the effort to finance this project, we were asking the presbytery of Waterloo Wellington, which is like our family of churches in this region, for an interest-free loan of over $100,000. And that went to a meeting on Tuesday night, and it was granted. (laughs) 
so we thank God for that. And through the course of this project, the elders, the session will be updating you on what's happening. So this morning we are diving back into Genesis. It's the second week of our new series in Genesis. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, as you hovered over the waters, you hover over us this morning. We are your church. We are the new creation together in Christ. Lord, would you speak your truth and your grace into us? Would you encourage us this morning through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to read, starting at the beginning, Genesis 1, the whole chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let, the, let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems, and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, 
in our likeness so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. So not long ago, I heard about a high school teacher who did things a little differently from most teachers, in my experience anyway. Every day when his students arrived for class... He would greet them by saying, good morning, cosmic accidents. Now, he was joking, but I think there was also a serious point behind it. He was saying to his students, you're the product of an accident of nature. You don't have a higher purpose. There's no greater horizon of meaning behind you. Essentially, he was saying you're alone in the universe and there is no deeper significance to any of this. There is no God. That was the message this teacher, this science teacher, was giving to his students. This morning, I want to be clear that the Bible says something quite different. We're going to look at the doctrine of creation today, as we started to last Sunday. We're also going to hear a testimony from a scientist within our church community, and I hope we'll start to see that science and Christian faith can be in harmony. I don't want that story I told you about that teacher to give you the wrong idea. As one theologian puts it, we do not have to choose between an anti-religious science and an anti-science religion. In the end, science helps us to know some things, but the only way we ever really find out who we truly are is from God. And the best place to start at that is in Genesis. Knowing that there is a loving personal God who created the universe changes everything. So when people come to Genesis chapter 1, I think they often come looking for particular answers to the question, how? How did God create all these things? How long did it take? Did it happen through evolution or not? But this passage doesn't provide definite answers to those questions. Instead, Genesis 1 gives us insight into the why question. I remember a few years ago, actually more than a few now, Judith and I bought my parents a bodum. They were intrigued. They opened it up. They took off the wrapping, opened the box. They'd never seen one of these before. And I waited. I'm the kind of son who, you know, plays with his parents a little bit. They had questions, but I can tell you what they didn't ask me. They didn't ask me, how long did it take someone to make this thing? How did they do it? What kind of a factory was this made in? Rather, they wanted to know what it was for. They'd only ever had a drip coffee maker. Why did you give us this strange thing, is what they asked. And that's what we need to know about the world as well. 
Why did God make it? What's it for? How do we live in it? Genesis 1 wasn't written to answer the question how, it was written to answer the question why. For example, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 both provide accounts of creation. If you read on in this book, you'll see that. And yet they're different, and some people say they contradict each other. But Genesis 1 is a poem. It's a song. For one thing, it's got tons of repetition in there. I'm sure you picked up on that as we read it. Genesis 2 doesn't repeat things. It's written as more of a historical report. Not like we would write history, perhaps, but it's clearly not a poem. Now, knowing Genesis 1 is a poem or a song, we ask the general questions, not the specific ones. We treat it as the author meant it to be treated, to be read. So while Genesis 1 may not tell us if the seven days of creation were 24-hour days, or it may not give us the age of the earth, and let me say we have a diversity of viewpoints about that within our congregation, and we want to maintain that diversity, and so we treat each other with respect, we love each other through that disagreement, we cultivate unity. Genesis may not give us answers to some of those questions, but it does address how creation happened in general. First of all, it tells us God created the world, which means that the world is not a cosmic accident. Secondly, it tells us God created the world. And the Hebrew word for created there is never used of anyone but God. It's a word that means to create out of nothing, something that wasn't there before. Here in Genesis 1, we get the basis for the Judeo-Christian view of creation. And there are at least two other views that circulate in our world, a modern view and an ancient one. The modern scientific view says that the material world is the only real thing. Nature is all there is, period. Now, I would say that is science overstepping its bounds. That's not good science, but we'll let Evan get into that later a bit in his testimony. The modern world says this world is all that there is. And so you should live for material things if that's all there is, right? You live for wealth, for pleasure, for other people. All of these are good things. On the other hand, the ancient view, which includes Eastern religions today, says this world isn't real. It's not important. You want to escape it. Genesis 1 says God created the heavens and the earth. So it's not an accident. And this world is not all there is. So don't live for material things. They will not satisfy you. Don't worship them. They're not worthwhile that way. At the same time, the Christian doctrine of creation says the world is good. It said it over and over and over and over again in that passage. Seven times. And it was good. You can imagine God the Creator enjoying the world as he said that. He's taking his time. He could have done this so fast. He is enjoying it patiently. Christians are not against pleasure. We're not against physical things. God created the world, so it's important and good and real in all its physicality. And so we are called to get involved with the world, to fight injustice, to protect the environment, to heal the sick, to put an end to slavery, to devote ourselves to these kinds of struggles. We don't say, well, someday we're going to heaven, and so these things don't matter. Instead, we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray, and then as he led us into the battle. Last Sunday, at the end of the service, right before the benediction, I read from Revelation 21. 
and it's amazing. It never ceases to amaze me. Ancient worldviews say that salvation is escaping from earth to heaven. But Christian salvation does the opposite. It brings heaven down to earth. In the end, the city of God comes down. We're not beamed up to heaven. We're not teleported out of this awkwardness. Here in Genesis 1, we see that God created body and soul. With the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see that he's redeeming us, body and soul. And in the end, he's going to restore the world in all of its goodness. That is where our ultimate hope lies. But what does Genesis 1 teach us about this critical question, why? Why did God create the world? Well, we have to look a little more carefully at the text for that. Ten times we read, and God said. So God creates through speaking. You, you heard that, I think, in the spoken word based on John 1 earlier in the service. Now, if I say, let there be light... Imagine it was dark in here. If I say, let there be light, nothing's going to happen. I can say it over and over and over. Nothing's going to happen until I go into the sound booth and flick one of those switches or go to the back there and turn on the lights. But here in Genesis 1, when God says, let there be light, he doesn't then go and make the light. His word is independent. His word is an agent of creation. His word has power. And the Bible tells us later on that the reason the Father's word can create is because it's a person. It's God's son. John 1 says nothing was created except through the word of God and then identifies the word of God as Jesus. And if you go back to Genesis 1, you see he's right. God never creates without speaking. And then in verse 26 When God is about to create humans, male and female, he says, let us make man in our image. Who's he talking to? Who's the us there? Well, this word, the son, the agent of creation and the spirit hovering over the water. And by the way, if you are interested in the Holy Spirit, which, as was mentioned last Sunday, is sometimes the third person of the Trinity that we don't always focus on, partly because the Spirit's job is to focus us on Jesus, but if you'd like to learn more about the Spirit, this morning's first equip class was fantastic and really helped to illustrate how the Spirit's involved in the creation of the whole world and in the creation and reordering of our lives. As we said last week, Christians believe the Bible teaches that God in himself is a loving community. He's already in relationship with himself. Here's what God is doing. From all eternity, God is a circle of love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there's more to the why question here. Genesis 1 is a song, after all, we've said. God is also speaking to creation because he wants a relationship. In Psalm 19, it says that nature's speech is always going out, which means that God created in creation and in all of his creatures a community which reflects God's glory. And then he comes to them and says, it is good. He gives them his blessing. Think about this with me for a second. Why, why are you so moved when you see a sunset? Why does it affect you so deeply to sit in front of a lake or the ocean 
Why does it still your spirit? Why does it calm you down? Why does it feed your soul? All of us sense that, even if we don't have the words to describe it. Genesis 1 tells you why. It's because nature is forever singing the praises of its maker. And it's calling you in. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, we don't only want to see beauty in nature. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. We want to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. But we can't, or not yet. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We see the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Don't you love that? I should just get up every Sunday and just read C.S. Lewis books, shouldn't I? Would that be okay? We could have like trapeze artists to keep you somewhat interested. All the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. What is C.S. Lewis talking about? Genesis 1 explains part of this. It says nature is a choir. Stop and look at the birds. Watch the leaves as they turn. Notice the light coming through the trees. Listen to the rain. They're all singing to you. And they're saying, our maker loves us. Our maker made us good. On our vacation this summer, I tried to persuade Judith and the kids one day to go for a walk with me. It was a beautiful day, which doesn't always happen where we vacationed. And there was this amazing set of hills, only a 15-minute drive from where we were staying. And I thought, we should go for a walk as a family. That's, we're on vacation. We should get some exercise, enjoy the beauty of the world. They didn't want to. I, at first, was surprised, and then I got upset. I thought, why do we come on vacation if we're not going to go for a walk as a family? Why, what is your reason? Can you give me a good, good defense of your position on this matter? And then they totally stopped talking to me at that point, oddly enough. And so I went off on the walk by myself. I was alone, and yet I continued to feed this fire of resentment, I was upset. They should have come for a walk. That's what families do. Families that walk together stay together. It doesn't rhyme, but it's it's true. And then I came upon a herd of sheep, and I sat down. And I noticed these sheep, they looked so peaceful and content. I thought, what is wrong with me? Why do you think nature is so happy and we are so sad? Why is it so beautiful? Why are we so drawn to it? It's because it's spiritual. We're deeply moved by it. It's musical in a way. But it's not just music in general. It's music that sings to us about its creator. It draws us into the circle of God's love. But we can't go there. We'll hear more about that in coming weeks. Why can't we get in? Because we can't sing the same song. Every one of us has made a choice to be our own Lord and our own master. We've turned away from God, our creator. And so we experience two things. 
First, when nature calls us to praise our maker, we have trouble with it because that's no longer the inclination of our hearts. The same way that I I nurtured that resentment towards Judith and the kids because they wouldn't come out on a walk with me. Nature is being what God made it to be. You think of these crickets we're talking about this morning in the church. When they sing their little cricket song, they're doing exactly what God created them to do. But we are not. We can't sing that song because nature is under the benediction of God. Singing that our maker loves us and says we're good, but we, for our part, have stepped out from under that blessing. Deep in your soul, you know that you need one thing more than anything else. You need to know your maker looks at you and says you are good. You need to know that more than anything else. That God the Creator says, you are right. I love you. I treasure you. You have no flaws. You are perfect to me. You need to know that, but you know the truth at some level. You know that you're not good. That you're not right with God. You know there's a barrier. And so Genesis 1 points us ahead to John chapter 1, to the other in the beginning in the Bible. It tells us that the word of God through whom everything was created became flesh, became physical, and came to earth to deal with this dilemma in which we find ourselves. And then at his baptism, God said he was very good. But Jesus chose what makes no sense to us still, I think. He went to the cross to die. We often talk about the blood of Jesus. We did that last week. We celebrated communion. But I think the worst thing about the cross happened when Jesus spoke, when Jesus cried out to his father and there was no answer. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. There was no good word that came, no blessing, no answer. Jesus bore the consequences of our rebellion and our sin. And he did that so that we could be recreated, so that we could have life. Do you believe in all of that? If you do, then you know that God looks at you and says, you are good, you are very good. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. We sang that earlier, right? You need to hear God's blessing so badly that until you do, you have a void at the heart of your life and you're going to try to fill it with material things, with success, with relationships, with money, with anything you can get your hands on that satisfies you for a moment. Or you'll try to fill it with spiritual things. You'll try to be good. You'll try to behave well to please God. You'll deny yourself. You'll use religion for control. Either way, you will not be able to join this choir to sing this song. Because the song of nature is that our maker loves us. He says that we're good. God's singing to nature and we're singing back to God. Nature is talking to every one of us about God. We all know it down deep, but it's also inviting us to sing. And we can't sing until we see that in Christ, the maker was unmade so that we could be remade. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Zephaniah 3.17. 
it says that God rejoices over me with singing. He rejoices over you. He sings over you. Have you ever had anyone sing to you, look you in the eyes and sing to you? I don't mean in Vegas or in a big show. I mean one-on-one. It's bizarre. It's awkward. It's intense. I mean, you think me looking you in the eye right now is is a bit nerve-wracking. When someone comes and sings to you, it is strange and so beautiful, especially if it's someone you love, someone you trust. I understand this verse better than I ever have after studying Genesis 1 this week. God makes us his new creation. It's not just that we can sing to God again with all creation, but God is singing over us, delighting in us. In Jesus Christ, we are now declared good. So receive his benediction. Step into that light. He says, through my son, I find you delightful. I love you. I cherish you. You are mine. You are my recreation and nothing can ever separate you from my love. So we thank God, don't we, for his creation and for his recreation. And all God's people said, there's so much in this chapter. And at the beginning of my sermon, I touched on what I think is for some of us a really important question. Others of us, maybe not as much, but I'm delighted that uh, Evan Versteeg, has been around Courtright for about a year now or so, eight months. Not too long, but I have a chance to get to know Evan a little bit. And Evan started the Masters this month at the University of Toronto in evolutionary biology. And he's going to come and tell us a little bit about his journey as a Christian who is also a scientist. this on? Can you hear? Hi. (laughs) Um, So like Alex was saying, my name is Evan. I'm blessed to be talking to you today as part of my testimony. It's just a small part. It's the part that kind of got me to where I am today studying evolutionary biology. A little high? Um, I'm a lifelong Christian. I've, I've been a Christian for as long as I can actually remember. And my day job is doing scientific research. And when I tell people that, I don't, it's just, to them, it's just like, oh, cool, that's, that's a fun fact. Um, but when I tell them that I'm an evolutionary ecologist, I, you get this very wide-eyed response, usually. Um, and it doesn't matter who I tell it to. I can tell it to, um, like, a fellow evolutionary biologist, and they'll be like, oh, you're, you're a Christian. Okay. That's, uh, yeah, uh, that's weird. Um, <laughs> I can tell Christians that I study evolution, and I get a very similar response. Um, there seems to be this universal understanding that the two things that I'm doing are very at odds with each other, um, that I'm not logically consistent. I grew up in a Reformed church, <laughs> and not once through all my childhood did I... Uh, think the world came about any differently than how my parents taught me, how my elders taught me, 
how I learned in Sunday school or anything like that. Um, I had no reason to believe any differently. They're all very smart people. They were uh, lawyers. They were uh, mechanics, welders, farmers, uh, pastors, all people who learned from a wide variety of life skills. Um, and my teenage life, I was just surrounded by people who believed the same thing as me. And because of that, I just never, I never thought of it more than that. I never questioned it at all. But as I was growing up, um, it might just be due to the fact that I always like trying new things and I'm a very argumentative person. Um, I was told by people who loved me and cared for me uh, to avoid studying things in university such as evolution or philosophy. They saw young adults who went off to university in our church and watched as some of them never really came back to church and some of them left their faith entirely. And they were scared and they were worried for me. And they loved me and it's a blessing that they were in my life or are in my life. They're not dead. (laughs) (laughs) To them, scientists spun this um, story of evolution so that they could, not, they could deny God um, and have control over their own lives. And, oh, there's a cricket right there. <laughs> I guess we can't kill it after that sermon. No, we can't. It's not singing at the moment either. Um, anyways, uh, so to them, scientists kind of like spun this story to get away from God. And with the help of uh, more militant atheists like Richard Dawkins, um, they're kind of was this association with the study of evolution and atheism and uh, denying Jesus. So because of that, I was just very suspicious of science and I was totally against something like evolution right from the start of my life without even questioning it. Um, But throughout the years, I attended a Christian high school um, and I kept meeting people who quietly and almost like in the closet stopped believing in God for the simple reason that they didn't think that the Bible and that evolution could coexist with one another. And they saw the evidence for evolution, and they were like, well, I feel like there's this choice in front of me. I can either be a Christian and ignorant. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Save the crickets. I study bugs for a living, by the way, so that's, you know. yeah, they had this choice, this false choice in front of them. Like, I could either be a Christian and ignorant, or I can believe in the facts and uh, not believe in God. Basically, that's what they saw. Um, and I wanted so badly to tell them that this is not, this is, it's not a choice that you should have to make. Like, God made the earth. There should be something about it that, you know, like, they're able to be reconciled. But I didn't know anything about evolution. I didn't know much about what they were talking about, to be honest. So I, I felt like I couldn't really do anything. Um, because of that, I went to this elective course in my high school in grade 12, and it was run by a teacher called Mr. Robinson, David Robinson. And uh, it was called Earth and Space Science. And his goal for that course was to, I guess, prepare us for university-level material. So it was, not only was it really hard, but we studied things like geology, um, evolution, um, biology, ecology, all of those things. I was shocked to realize, and this is the first time I've ever met anyone like this, that Robinson was um, a Christian, but he believed fully in evolution. He didn't think that there was an issue with that at all. 
Um, of all the teachers, actually, in my high school, he was the one teacher who was most open to talking about God and his own personal faith with us kids, um, which was also really interesting. And every time you went to lunch with him, there was always a crowd of kids just sitting around his desk, and they would all be talking about a swath of things from politics to religion to evolution. And one of the verses that he quoted a lot was Romans 1, verse 19 to 20. And it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Robinson kind of ignited this spark in me that perhaps maybe I was looking at things a little wrong. Maybe I was looking at just one side of a two-sided coin. So after high school, I went to university here in Guelph. Um, I went for ecology, so nothing really to do with evolution in that sense, but I took as many evolution courses that I was allowed to. Um, I watched hundreds of hours, uh, like literally hundreds of hours of Christian apologetics videos. And for those of you who don't know what apologetics is, it's not apologizing to be a Christian or anything like that. It's just the, um, the discipline of explaining and thinking through and defending the Christian faith using logic and reasoning. Um, so throughout all this, I had many discussions, discussions? discussions with uh, atheists arguing from the Christian perspective. But I also had many discussions with Christians arguing from the atheist perspective. Because to me, well, I enjoy being a devil's advocate, but also I think it's really important for me that if I wanted to talk to an atheist properly, I needed to be able to talk like an atheist properly. I'd be able to understand exactly what they were thinking about and how they would argue. Near the end of university, I began to realize some things. One, due to my studies, that evolution is the best tool that we have to make accurate predictions of biology, to understand the past and to see the future. None of the scientists that I was with cared about history much at all. They cared about the fact that there is this thing that we came up with that we're able to make a guess as to what could be out there, and usually that guess was right, and that's all it was to them. And the second thing I realized is that evolution is just one tiny perspective of how the world came to be. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And Paul didn't mean that, you know, everything outside the Bible is foolish. What he was talking to us about is that without God, anything that we try to do is foolish. All the wisdom that we try to learn without God is useless. To me, evolution is just that. It's worldly wisdom. It's just part of the story. With God at the center of my life, I see it for what it truly is. It's a tool that we can use to further look into God's creation and to further study it and to learn how it works and maybe try to protect it, as is our calling as Christians. And to me, that is very satisfying. And I know that there's a lot of people here, especially since we get a lot of university students, who might be struggling with this concept and have a lot of questions about evolution, they might feel like they're sitting on that fence between Christianity and atheism. And to them, I want to say that Courtright, one of the reasons why I really love it is that it's a place where you're able to talk about these things and that they really practice this spirit of, I guess, community 
that was, as Alex was saying, was there before the world was even created. That there was, the greatest calling for Christians is community and it's love. And that you can feel free to talk to any of us. You can talk to me, you can talk to Alex or Justin, uh, Allison, any, any of us. And we might not have all the answers for you. And that's okay. Um, actually, one of the foundations of science is to be okay with not knowing everything. But uh, one of the foundations of Christianity is love. So, thank you. Stay up here. I'm, I'm going to pray for Evan. And um, we've commissioned our youth and our Sunday school teachers. Now I want to do something kind of, maybe it's the other side of that coin in a way. Um, if you're a student right now in high school or post-secondary university college, would you stand up? If you are a teacher or work in an educational institution, would you stand up? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much that you are the creator of all knowledge. And you don't want us to live in a spirit of fear. I pray for everyone standing right now and all the rest of us, because we're all lifelong learners. That's what it means to be a disciple. It means to be learning, not to have it all figured out. Um, I pray for Evan as he starts this master's in, at U of T, uh, and for Meg as they're expecting their first child, and he's got the pressure of coursework, and they're trying to find a new place to live. Would you guide them and provide for them? I pray for everyone standing, especially for students starting something new in high school or university or college. Um, for teachers, the first month is tough for those working in schools. Lord, we've seen how you spoke life at the beginning. Would you enable us to speak life based on what we're learning to our fellow students May we be a light in the university, in the college, in the high school, wherever we find ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite...